Welcome to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm the chairman of the Precision Oncology Alliance, the large collaborative research network at Keras Life Sciences, where we have many healthcare systems and academic institutions. We collaborate on precision oncology research with the hope that this research provides output that improves the outcomes of all patients diagnosed with cancer. Today's podcast is focused on gynecological malignancies, on gynecological oncology, uh, hosting Dr. Premal Thacker, a professor at Washington University in St. Louis. And what I challenged Dr. Thacker with is to explain to all of us the advances in some gyne-oncology malignancies in the era of precision medicine. How did her practice change? What is she doing now differently? Uh, frankly, when I was in residency, the uh, biggest advance in gyne-oncology was to give a little bit of carbotaxol after patients undergo surgery in localized disease and uh, you know carbotaxol in metastatic disease. And you're going to learn today that a lot of changes, a lot of uh, opportunities to improve the outcomes of these patients. And we're going to talk a little bit about the HRD and uh, uh, what in the world is that and how does this really impact uh, how we treat patients with cancer. So I appreciate you tuning in to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. I appreciate your support. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, rate the show, and write a brief review. And without further ado, Dr. Premal Thacker on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. For those folks who are listening to the podcast, who haven't had a chance to meet you, maybe a little bit about you, uh, where you are and where you practice and and what got you interested in in surgery in general and gyne oncology in particular? Sure. So I'm Premal Thacker. I'm a professor in GYN oncology at Washington University in St. Louis. I always specify that because otherwise people think Washington's either Washington, D.C. or Washington State. Um, but we're in the middle of the country like you are, Chatty. We're smack in the middle. Um, but I had actually trained at MD Anderson and then came here and have been here on faculty for 16 years. So I actually love where I live and work. Um, I'm fortunate to be one of nine faculty, and what brought me to GYN Oncology is the combination of complete care for the patient, because, you know, we're surgeons, and we also are the only onco surgical oncologists that treat patients, right? So we get to have longevity of care with patients. Hopefully, we cure patients, but we take them from diagnosis all the way to end of life, which I think is a really unique position that lots of oncologists get to have, but we can offer them two modalities of treatment. So, you know, systemic therapies as well as surgery. So that's what I really loved. Is, uh, you know, in other malignancies, usually the uh, medical oncologist delivers the chemotherapy, but mm -hmm. in gyne oncology, it's different. So you actually can administer chemotherapy and supervise like the, the setup. You actually don't need to refer to medical oncology to deliver chemotherapy. Correct. So, you know, whether it be chemotherapy, immunotherapy, as we're learning the world of ADCs, um, we're coming along with the rest of medical oncology to newer therapies. So that's a great part. The other, I would say that's good, is that we do share sometimes shared relationships of patients because we also realize that not all patients can come to us to get their systemic therapies. They, you know, have financial constraints, jobs, you know, other sort of competing 
you know, factors that might make it easier to have shared decision making. So we do also participate with, you know, the community oncologists to deliver medical systemic therapies and chemotherapies to them. So I'd like to say we like to hoard our patients and patients do like that aspect of, you know, one-stop shop, but there are definitely times that we have shared decision-making. So I think it's a, it's, it's exciting because we learn a lot from our medical oncology colleagues all the time. And then uh, when it comes to gyne-oncology, is the field moving into some of you specializing only in ovarian, others only in endometrial, or are you seeing more that, you know, you can do all gyne malignancies? So currently, I'd say we are doing all gyne malignancies, um, but there are definitely larger centers where, you know, I can say for my alma mater at, at MD Anderson, there's like an ovarian cancer team or there is, you know, certain physicians who decide to specialize in one malignancy or the other. Um, but here at Washington University, we do it all from cervical cancer and pelvic exonerations to ovarian debulkings. Um, so we haven't done that model um, because we are a high volume center. So we feel that we can, all of us maintain our skill set um, as well as, you know, sometimes we all like that thrill of surgeries and it can sometimes be a little monotonous if you're just doing one type of surgery you know, over and over again. You know, it's it's interesting. The world of oncology has become so subspecialized that sometimes I joke with my colleagues that you are in charge of malignancies of the right ovary. <laughs> right, right. I mean, it's it's getting crazy. No, it's, I would also say one other thing is, you know, I think GYN oncology has been one of the last bastions where we've done these big debulkings up front. But, you know, there has been more of a shift for neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So sometimes the role of surgery is still important. But I do think we're seeing a little less aggressiveness of surgery, partly because we realize that in order to get no microscopic disease, no matter how good of a surgeon you are, it's very challenging to obtain that benchmark. Um, you know, our older literature is all like you can leave two centimeters or one centimeter, and now it's like no gross residual. So, you know, I think we're seeing sometimes frailer patients too. COVID has definitely, I think, given us more advanced and complicated cases because patients have been neglecting themselves also for the last two years. Um, so I think, you know, we're seeing a little bit more of a balance and a shift too. But there's definitely some gynecologic oncologists who only do surgery and they work with a medical oncologist to just administer their, you know, chemotherapy or systemic therapies. But I think in pure academics, most places are still doing the, you know, traditional model of both surgery and chemotherapy. So on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast, what I try to focus on is what I call the intersection between clinical medicine and molecular medicine or clinical medicine and precision oncology. Sure. And for somebody like me who is not a gyne oncologist, and I can tell you when I was in practice, I didn't see gyne malignancies because, huh? uh, you know, obviously they're usually taken care of by the gyne oncologist. I've always been struck by how personalized medicine have become really instrumental in how you surgeons deal with gyne uh, oncology. So take us through, you know, currently in your practice, how would you describe the role of precision medicine in gynecologic malignancies, malignancies in general? And you can focus on one or two based on your expertise. Sure. So I would say it's a fascinating time to be in GYN oncology because we're learning more about precision 
oncology for all our cancer states. So meaning cervical cancer with it being, you know, a PDL1 marker. Sometimes, you know, if they have EGFR uh, mutations, they can actually benefit from drugs too. So we can give patients, you know, really personalized care. Um, in endometrial cancer, we're trying to learn how to use our molecular characterization, such as if they have a poly mutation, maybe de-escalating care in terms of not offering them chemotherapy and just observing them. Um, so we have clinical trials that are looking at this so that we can hopefully make those the standards because we know in endometrial cancer, we probably overtreat a large proportion of patients when we just look at histology alone. But there's definitely you know, the mismatch repair deficits that we see in these patients with endometrial cancer can benefit from immunotherapy. Um, so we're learning a lot more because I say before, when I was a fellow for endometrial cancer, I was just looking at estrogen hormone status and maybe, you know, trying to give them some hormonal treatments and some chemotherapy. But now we can really try to tailor what treatments we offer. But where I say precision oncology has helped us the most is really with our ovarian cancer patients, um, learning, you know, their BRCA status, understanding their homologous repair deficiency scores, um, as well as those patients who have the, you know, who are proficient in their homologous recombination, who are the hardest patients to treat, um, because now we can offer maintenance therapy. So, you know, as a medical oncologist, you treated patients for years and offered them maintenance. And in general, GYN oncology, we've never had that option. And so I remember being at ESMO in 2019 when all the PARP inhibitor data just like came to the forefront and we were like, oh my gosh, PARP inhibitors could really change our world. Um, and it would be gone the days of just taxol carbo and observation. Um, so we really have made huge strides because we're really offering patients tailored treatment um, in terms of maintenance and hopefully even curing patients. We're still waiting for some of the curing um, final survival data. But, you know, just at this past ESMO, we had an update of the SOLO1 trial, which was looking at using a Laparib, a PARP inhibitor in, you know, patients with a BRCA mutation. And the seven-year overall survival is quite impressive. We can't use the word cure, but we definitely know that we have patients who have not reached their OS, which, you know, we never used to talk about in gyne malignancies. These are patients with stage three and four ovarian cancer. So it's very impressive um, how we can now tailor this and give patients a lot of hope and optimism um, in the upfront setting, as well as in the recurrent setting, because we have a lot of new therapies that are coming down, looking at folate receptors, um, antagonists, and, you know, antibody drug conjugates. And so we look at our you know, profiles and read them all to try to find out, oh my gosh, does this patient have this abnormality or not? So it's really a fascinating time. It's also a time where you can't stay stagnant because, you know, it feels like every couple of months or weeks we're getting, you know, ASCO updates. This one drug has been approved if you have this mutation. And, you know, even if they're rare in GYN, um, you know, you find it for that one patient as that miracle drug, right? Like we're all hoping for. And when you say BRCA, just for listeners, you're talking somatic sure. mutations. Somatic mutations, correct. So I'm talking about somatic mm -hmm. um, and, you know, looking at the profiling and learning what the homologous recombination deficiency scores mean, um, because, you know, we're trying to understand how to define it, right? Um, because a lot of the trials use different different ways to measure it, different tests 
different incorporation of testing. Um, and so also trying to understand, does it change over time? These are questions that are still unanswered. Does your score for HRD change? We well, don't know. So let's assume, you know, the folks mm -hmm. who are listening know nothing about gynecology. Sure. I, two questions. Number one, what is the what are, what is the percentage uh, in your experience of folks who might have this BRCA mutation on the somatic uh, level? Like, what what's the what are we thinking about? And uh, number two, simplify. What are what is the HRD score? What are we really talking about on in simple terms? Sure. So you know, in terms of you know, it's it gets confusing because a lot of people will say BRCA somatic, but then others will call it an HRD or a BRCA-ness. So I think the literature gets a little confusing. A pure like BRCA somatic mutation is probably about 20 to 25%. But sort of adding in the others, because we know these pathways for DNA repair are quite complicated. It's not just a BRCA mutation. There's other enzymes that are important that lead to you to having homologous recombination deficiency issues in repairing your tumor microenvironment. And so when you put those BRCA somatic with these HRD abnormalities, it can be as high as almost 50% um, that patients will have this in their tumor microenvironment. And if they have this abnormality, then they can benefit potentially from a PARP inhibitor or a combination of bevacizumab and a PARP inhibitor. So it's really been fascinating. The other thing that I'll say is very fascinating about learning about HRD is that most of the work has actually been done in gynecologic malignancies. And now you're seeing it translate into, you know, pancreatic cancer, prostate cancer, breast cancer. So for once, we are actually leading the way in GYN oncology, which is great to like learn these scores and what do they mean and how do you test for it? And so how do you test for HRD? Is it this is like you can you can get that through... Uh next generation sequencing? Right. So through next generation sequencing, you can get a loss of heterozygosity score, um, which usually will tell you if it's greater than 16, that it has an HRD propensity, the tumor. And so you can use that as a marker. Additionally, you'll see on your NGS testing, if they have a BRCA somatic mutation in one or two as well. So these are all tests that you can look at your NGS panels and say, this patient is going to benefit from a PARP inhibitor or some type of other maintenance therapy. And what's in the world of endometrial cancer? What what excites you? Yeah, so for endometrial cancer, I think, you know, what's exciting is really trying to understand getting away from, you know, traditional pathology of just saying it's a grade one endometrioid cancer or grade two or three and looking at the molecular actual characteristics. So we're looking at... Mm -hmm. You know, I mentioned the poly, so looking at this sort of exonuclease to see if, you know, you're over um, expressing this because then those are patients that probably do not need to get systemic therapy. We're looking at P53 mutations. We're looking at copy number um, in our patients as well, their tumor microenvironment. And based on this, we're going to try to decide, you know, who needs chemotherapy, who's going to need, you know, radiation therapy, who needs the combination of both. So gone will be the day where I think it's just going to be simply you're a stage 1C grade 3. It'll be like you're a stage 1C grade 3 mismatch repair intact. You don't have a deficiency in MMR, but you have copy number low, and this is what your treatment is. So it's going to get more and more complex. We're not anywhere near what lung cancer is where you're down to like 
EGFR submutations. We'll hopefully get there in GYN. It's just exciting that we have these, you know, really, I think, attainable goals, um, which we've never had before. So it's an exciting part of my job, I'd say. It keeps you on your toes. So, Pramal, in metastatic disease today, do you need to sequence every patient with metastatic disease? Or are there patients that require that, but there are patients who have some histologic features where you say, you know what, this is just unlikely to have, you know, whatever, a biomarker that is going to drive therapy. Like, how do you make a decision when you're faced with metastatic ovarian cancer and metastatic endometrial cancer uh, on NGS versus not? Right. So I'd say every patient has metastatic disease. Now we are actually testing everybody um, because of the fact that we will be surprised that we will find something we can target. Um, and the benefit of it is the more we learn by doing these larger panels and they're so accessible, um, the better it is for us to be able to learn and do research like we try to do through the POA, because that's also with numbers and data, that's how we get better. But more importantly, um, I think we're, you know, if we under test patients, we will never realize that true potential. So we are doing it really on even some of our early stage one cancers, which have adverse histologies, because we do feel that they are going to have these P53 mutations. Are they going to have a HER2 new mutation? And now we have even for, you know, low expressing HER2 um, tumors, newer drugs, and opportunities. And so we want to explore those as well in our own endometrial serous cancers, for instance. So I think there's a lot of hope and optimism, um, you know, if we can find this. And also, if you look at this, even though they're low-hanging sometimes mutations, if you get a TSC mutation, rare is rare, but if it happens in an ovarian or endometrial cancer, that might be eligible for, you know, a trial. So Unless you look, you won't know. And I'd say the nice thing I find, and I know this is the Karis Minute, but is also that, you know, clinical trials are part of the report, right? So the benefit of coming to a center like us, we may not have that particular trial, but maybe we can then look up if there's something in the neighboring area or Chicago or somewhere where a patient might be able to connect. I think we wouldn't honestly be here and having this conversation from if it wasn't for clinical trials. Let, let's 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 right. real. I mean, we are here because clinical trials have led to the development of drugs that target these specific mutations. Yeah. Uh, do you see applications for liquid biopsy in gyn malignancy similar to what we see in solid tumors outside of the pelvis? Like, do, is there lots of uh, utility for that? Well, there's a lot of excitement for it. I'm not quite sure that ovarian cancer sh sheds as much, you know, protein in the blood. I mean, I feel like when I've read about this, it seems mixed, but I do think it would be great because there's lots of chances to serially get information. And in gynecologic malignancies, a lot of times when we have these recurrences, they're in very tricky areas, which make rebiopsy very difficult. So, you know, I think that we will notice that there is um, benefit, but I'm not, I'm cautiously optimistic. And I think it's also partly technology, right? Like how good is our assay? Because if I look at, you know, the assays of today in NGS versus 10 years ago, I mean, they're phenomenally different and better, right? We just, with research, keep getting better. And, you know, one of the nice things also in GYN, a lot of this is also NGS, but some of these newer drugs and targets that we need are just done by simple IHC, but having it all comprehensively in one report 
is also important because I don't have to be like, here's my NGS panel, here's my pathology report from my pathologist, or, you know, I can get everything in a one area, which in the time of medicine where everything is so quick with patient care, you know, I wish it wasn't, but that's sort of just the reality of how many patients we see, we do need it to be efficient. And so I find that that's also a huge benefit because we're talking a lot about NGS, but precision medicine can also be as simply done with IHC, but it has to be done. Right. Um, And that's the beauty of, I think the CARES panel is that offers you lots of different sort of, you know, platforms to, in order to get your information, which we don't talk about the less sexy parts, but IHC can be very sexy for us. um, Ultimately, ultimately precision medicine is delivering the right therapy to the right patient Mm -hmm. at the right time. And however you actually discover the right target with the right therapy, whether it's IHC, NGS, what matters is the patient's benefit. And, and, you know, to your point about liquid biopsy, absolutely, it's we're hoping that our CARES Assure is really overcoming a lot of these challenges by uh, getting the, uh, you know, uh, doing the RNA-seq and the DNA-seq right. from, from the blood. Let me ask you this. If you, if you put on your futuristic hat, do you see early stages? Uh, we talked about metastatic disease. I want to go to early stages. These are you know, the one and two and potentially threes, obviously, where you really are able to resect the, the entire cancer. And sometimes you give chemotherapy afterwards. Sometimes you don't. Do you see, how do you see the next five years, the application of NGS in early stage disease that has not spread? Yeah, I think it's going to be even more important because I think what we're going to learn, you know, with ovarian cancer, we're talking about HRD and BRCA mutations and that. But I think, you know, we're going to probably learn there's different phenotypes even from that. If we look at the original TCGA data, which, you know, now is over 10 years old, there was like a mesenchymal type. There's an immunophenotype. So, you know, we are probably going to learn sort of these signatures and hopefully we'll learn them even in early stages. So we might save someone chemotherapy and they go straight to immunotherapy. Um, So that's my futuristic hope that it's not that everyone gets chemo and then we get a different maintenance is that we really will have precision oncology from the initial diagnosis and not just right now. I feel like it's more ready for maintenance or recurrence, but I feel like we're going to get better and better and have those changes and also de-escalate. Like I mentioned for endometrial cancer, I think we're going to have huge changes as, you know, as one of my uh, senior partners will say, he's like, it used to be always so easy. You just did a hysterectomy. You know, that's all you did. You did that. And then most of them were cured. And then you might've given some radiation, but now there's all these different, you know, submolecular types that we need to look at. And he's like, it's getting more and more complicated. I'm like, that's great for patients, right. That we're trying to make it precise for you. And this will be wonderful. I always say, if I could be out of business, I'd love to be out of business as a cancer physician. Yeah. It'd be a wonderful dream. And and you know, it's really interesting because you mentioned that earlier. It's a great time to be in the field of oncology because mm-hmm. really the impact of what you could do on a patient level and on a population level uh, is huge. And uh, yes, it's getting complicated. The answer to board questions in medical oncology was always easy. Yeah. Car- carbotaxol, really. <laughs> it was. Um, it was funny because when I give my lectures to the medical oncologists, they're like, are you going to tell me anything besides tax on carbo? And I'm like, yes, I got lots of other things to tell you about now. Um, but it's true. Before I, I let you go, I have to ask you this because this is something that um, 
at some point was very popular and I don't know where it stands. So, you know, as a host of a podcast, you learn, you can ask selfish questions that you can learn because I don't have time to Google them. (laughs) Um, Intraperitoneal therapy. Are you still doing that? So, you know, we are not doing it at, as often anymore, but we do do it for intraperitoneal immunotherapy. Um, We do have some trials looking at the combination of chemotherapy with uh, intraperitoneal immunotherapy. We also are excited about, you know, cellular therapies and some of these CAR T's for ovarian cancer have been, you know, given intraperitoneally because most of our disease burden is in the abdomen and pelvis. Um, So I'd say it's losing favor. Um, and mainly because of the fact it's pretty, you know, intensive from a medical standpoint in terms of nurses, you know, needing extra hydration, lots of supports. Um, so, you know, we're hoping that we can give it through a standard ID or an oral medication as opposed to intraperitoneal. At that time, we also didn't have all these molecular precision yeah. ontology. So we were trying to do anything to get the drug concentrated, right? to the, where the disease was. And now we have better drugs with ADCs and, you know, precision oncology to say who should get this. So, you know, people are going to probably look back at us at, and say, oh my gosh, that sounds so archaic, but that's what we had. It was a New England Journal of Medicine paper still in that. It was. Yeah. It was. I won't no. say the date and the, because <laughs> that means you and I are like in a contemporary time. Yeah. Well, I cannot thank you enough. This was great. Appreciate you taking time with our listeners. And uh, as always, Dr. Premal Thackers, thank you so much for coming on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate your support. I appreciate you being with me on this podcast. and. I also would love for you to let us know what you think of this podcast by subscribing to it, writing a brief review, rating it. And you can always reach out to me to cnabhan at karisls.com. Until next time, take care. And let's all hope for a better future for all of our patients. Bye-bye.